Welcome to a hyper-masculine episode of Seeking Tumnus, the podcast where we delve deep into the dark recesses of our past and dust off the tomes that created worlds in our minds as we folk. On alternate episodes, we give something new a shot if it's all shiny-looking and in the vicinity of young adult fiction. My name is Laurie, and I'm joined by the bold and the beautiful Keith Rowe. Hmm. Well, you sound less and less impressed every week. <laughs> I'm glad you're picking that up. Someone else doesn't seem to be. <laughs> I'm enjoying it, actually. I feel more engaged with each one of these that goes by. <laughs> and the takes no chances when he dances in tight pants Patrick Moon. Like sands through the hourglass. These are the days of teen fiction. No, I don't know. Hi. Apologies from Brie. Boo. Oh. <laughs> this episode, I'm 10 years old again, snuggled up on my favourite couch reading about talking mice, badgers, squirrels, voles, moles, otters and others, taking on villainous vermin and predators in the anthropomorphic medieval fantasy. Wind th- through the willows. <laughs> <laughs> Do I get the t- wind in the willows? Wind in the willows. It is wind in the willows. Oh, what's wrong with me? I've had a long day. <laughs> Anthropomorphic medieval fantasy series known as The Tales of Redwall by Brian Jakes. We crack open the pages of Redwall, the first book of the series, but before we stick in our twitchy little noses too far, a warning. This episode of Seeking Tumness may contain spoilers. This is a very popular series of books, 22 in total with a couple of picture books. These books contain animals with distinct and varied British accents. So Laurie, in his enthusiasm, may unload some of them upon us. So fierce and vociferous was Brian Jake's love for this intricate world of anthropomorphised creatures that not even his 2011 death could stand in the way of the final title in the series. (laughs) So let this be a warning to you about the lengths and depths and lengths that he will go to to immerse you (laughs) in his colourfully described world. (laughs) None of us are more fitting to read the opening page of this book than Laurie, for great things were foretold of this tale. I'm going to take a little nap whilst Laurie does the first uh, page. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was going to say arigato, Mr. Keithrow, but I'm not sure that I will now. <laughs> would, you, would, would you mind if I added a supplementary warning? No, go for it. Great. I'm going to pronounce Matthias as Matthias. Though some people might better know the pronunciation as Matthias or Matthias. The way, dear listener, that you pronounce it is indeed the correct way, and we apologise. <laughs> Hit delete on the email that you are currently typing. Yes. Uh, forewarned, let's get forearmed with a touch of the book, page one. Matthias cut a comical little figure as he wobbled his way along the cloisters, with his large sandals flip-flopping and his tail peeping from beneath the baggy folds of an oversized novice's habit. He paused to gaze upwards at the cloudless blue sky and tripped over the enormous sandals. Hazelnuts scattered out upon the grass from the rush basket he was carrying. Unable to stop, he went tumbling cowl over tail. Bump! The young mouse squeaked in dismay. He rubbed tenderly at his damp, snub nose while slowly taking stock of where he had landed, directly at the feet of Abbot Mortimer. Immediately, Matthias scrambled about on all fours, hastily trying to stuff nuts back into the basket as he clumsily muttered apologies, avoiding the stern gaze of his elder. Er, sorry, Father Abbot, I tripped, you see. Dropped on my abbot, Father Abbot. Oh dear, I mean... The Father Abbot blinked solemnly over the top of his glasses. Matthias again. What a young buffoon of a mouse. Only the other day he had singed Brother Methuselah's whiskers while lighting candles. The elder's stern expression softened. 
He watched the little novice rolling about on the grass, grappling with large armfuls of the smooth hazelnuts which constantly seemed to escape his grasp. Shaking his old grey head, yet trying to hide a smile, Abbot Mortimer bent and helped to gather up the fallen nuts. Oh, Matthias, Matthias, my son, he said wearily, when will you learn to take life a little slower, to walk with dignity and humility? How can you ever hope to be accepted as a mouse of Redwall when you are always dashing about, grinning from whisker to tail like a mad rabbit? Matthias tossed the last of the hazelnuts into the basket and stood awkwardly, shuffling his large sandals in the grass. How could he say aloud what was in his heart? The abbot put his paw around the young mouse's shoulder, sensing his secret yearnings, for he had ruled Redwall wisely over a great number of years and gained much experience of mouse life. He smiled down at his young charge and spoke kindly to him. Come with me, Matthias. It is time we talked together. I think that's pretty much where we'll stop for page one. Thanks. Bravo. Keith, how did that hit you? Ooh, I wasn't interested in the slightest. (laughs) (laughs) I was, however, very worried. Very worried because it was quite a long book. Laurie. (laughs) <laughs> How about you? <laughs> <laughs> All right. I concede it's not the battering ram that some people need cracking them in the face. It's a softly, softly kind of approach that mm, I guess some might find dissatisfying. In the strict rules of this segment, it's a tiny bit of a flop, which is why I'm going to break them a little bit. The first chapter is four pages. The bit we heard and then the abbot talking to young Matthias about how they should live their lives in peace and how even the patron saint of their order, the great Martin the Warrior, after destroying a vile tormentor and freeing himself and others from slavery, had laid down his sword and sworn to a life of peace. It's at this point that Chapters 2 sneaks up and slaps us. A very brief sample, if you'll indulge me, Patrick? I guess I probably (laughs) don't have an option. (laughs) The high warm sun shone down upon Clunny the Scourge. Clunny was coming. Oh, you go Clunny. Uh, speaking of pronunciation, I went Clooney. I was Clooney as well. Mm, okay. I thought it was Clunny. But Clunny would think... be two ends, right? Well, I don't uh, know. I don't know. Anyway. Anyway, we, we, we pulled the rug out of, from under <laughs> your uh, glorious reading. Uh, carry on. He was big and tough, an evil rat with ragged fur and curved, jagged teeth. He wore a black eye patch. His eye had been torn out in a battle with a pike. Clunny had lost an eye. The pike had lost its life. Some said that Clunny was a Portuguese rat. Others said he came from the jungles far across the oceans. Nobody knew for sure. Clunny was a bilge rat, the biggest, most savage rodent that ever jumped from ship to shore. He was black, with grey and pink scars all over his huge, sleek body. From the tip of his wet nose, up past his green and yellow slitted eye, across both his mean, tattered ears, down the length of his heavy, vermin-ridden back, to the enormous, whip-like tail that had earned him his title, Clunny the Scourge. Now, now I'm hooked. What about you, Pat? Uh, mm. <laughs> I'm probably I'm inclined to agree with Keith on the, the first section. Yep. Um, I, I didn't find it particularly engaging really and the introduction of Clooney I'll go with Clooney because that's how I, I said it through the book I'm going to get confused if I try and alter my pronunciations sure uh Cl- Clooney was definitely the more interesting character he was a little bit different to the fairly vanilla folk of Redwall who I've I've read about in many a fantasy novel and didn't necessarily need to have rehashed for me in mouse form but Clooney was a little bit more original, and I, I like the battle rat kind of persona that's going on there. The uh, the poison tip on his tail and his general attitude of badassery is pretty welcome. Mm, and he's got something like 500 nasty vermin types behind him as well, combination of rats and others, so... He, he does indeed. He's an impressive rat. Can I just say, in these first pages, though, one of the things that baffled me for a little while, and I don't know if it was just my problem or if anybody else had this difficulty, I was kind of wondering how big 
are these mice? How big are the rats? How big is Redfall? Like, what's the scale here? Are these normal mice living in like a human-sized abbey, or are they, are they like giant, giant, crazy fantasy mice that build people-sized abbeys in a world where people don't exist, or are they mice living in a mice-sized abbey, like a tiny little cute? It does actually give you the dimensions. Just prior to the page one that I read, there's a small description of red ball itself and oh, i didn't i didn't want to read that out but it does say it's, it's probably fairly tedious for going into the minutiae of this kind of stuff but i i struggled throughout and i probably wouldn't have if i'd paid enough attention to the it stood or... four square along the marches of the old south border that's red ball yeah how big's four square i've got no idea <laughs> I thought that was just an app <laughs> i think it's big but i think in relation to the inhabitants, at least sort of from all the artwork I've seen, they it's a massive building for them, but it's not human-sized massive. Okay. Yeah. That being said, from my recollections of the series, the only time that anything much larger than them is described, and I might be wrong because it's been a long time since I've read all the books, is the cart at the beginning of this book. There's a horse. Yeah, that's that's what threw me was there, there were two things. There's a cart mm. and a horse yep. that the rats ride on. It says hundreds of rats are riding on this cart. So I'm like, okay, it's a normal normal cart yeah. as you would expect it to be. And the other time was they start climbing a tree to try and scale the walls of mm. Redwall. And they say, oh, if, if, why isn't that tree blowing in the wind? It's, it's sort of bending the wrong way. And that's because it's got invaders climbing it and it made me think well how how bleeding big is this are these rats abbey that that they're yeah that they're like weighing down a tree and oh, i thought it might have just been the tips of a branch that were sort of and, swaying in the breeze and what were they using mm. as a bridge to get into the abbey wasn't it a fence some, post? some kind of plank yeah i thought it was from a fence which would indicate that it's not a rat or Mouse-sized fence, but a human-sized Any, fence. Anyway, I th- I'm, I'm already bored of this conversation, <laughs> so I can only imagine what people are listening to. No, actually, no, it's a really valid point because I had some questions for Laurie and that was amongst them. I think that Brian Jakes probably would have liked to have retconned that because I never recall anywhere afterwards anything that's human-sized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like he did it in this first book and then probably regretted it much later on because you never get an indication of humans living in this world at all apart from that book, as far as I can remember. Yeah, yeah. actually there's an FAQ with Brian Jakes and someone asked a similar question. It was, I've just started your book, so I've read Redwall and, and am now working on Matameo. At the beginning of Redwall, there is the riderless horse cart and now in Matameo there is mention of a ship that sank. Are there humans somewhere in the realm of Redwall? Brian Jake's answer is no, there are no humans. My first book, Redwall, did mention the horse and cart, but no humans are ever in the stories, and I don't intend that they should ever be. The ships are generally crewed by vermin. So he, he sort of doesn't answer the question so well. I think Laurie's on the money there that he maybe regretted that inclusion at a later stage because it didn't feature in any of the subsequent books or nothing of that scale did. It threw me a little bit, especially at the start of the book, through those first couple of pages, because I don't think it was ever as clear to me as it may have been in things like The Wind in the Willows, what ex- exactly how I was meant to imagine these creatures that are being described. Mm. Yeah. But that's a minor quibble and not really. It's the first thing I thought about when I, I read that intro with Clunny. The, the horse and the cart sort of smacked me in the face a little bit as odd because I didn't recall that and I didn't remember it anywhere else in the series. Patrick, why don't you give us the synopsis of the story? I will. I'll give you the brief Goodreads version, which is fairly uninformative, and then elaborate a little bit. Uh, Redwall Abbey, tranquil home to a community of peace-loving mice, is threatened by Clooney the Scourge, the evil one-eyed rat warlord, and his battle-hardened horde of predators. Clooney is certain that Redwall will fall easily to his fearsome army, but he hasn't bargained for the courage and strength of the combined forces of the Redwall mice and their loyal woodland friends. So I think that touches on the, the bare bones of what the story is about, but really what you have is this Abbey centred around the warrior figure, Martin the Warrior, who was the founder of this order of peaceful mice, within which lives Matthias, who's a novice studying to become one of the, the brothers. And out of a blue sky, one day comes Clooney the Scourge charging in on this horse and by sheer luck is stranded around Redwall. And when he sends out his forces to start exploring the area, they stumble across the Abbey and 
he likes what he sees and kind of wants it for himself. It's going to be Clooney's castle rather than Redwall if he has his way. So the inhabitants start putting together a, a force to defend the castle in kind of opposition to their better natures. And Matthias follows in the footsteps of Martin the Warrior, begins collecting the artefacts associated with the Abbey's founder, like his sword, his sword belt, in order to better defend uh, the Abbey from the invaders. Uh, anything salient that you would like to add? I'll maybe add that the pursuit of the sword took a very long time, and I think it was at 80-odd percent that he first laid eyes upon it. <laughs> <laughs> the sword is the sword of Martin the Warrior that is more than just the sword. It's supposed to be the symbol of hope for the characters, that if they could just find the sword, the symbol of their patron saint, the Martin the Warrior, then perhaps they could overcome this evil horde. That's Wasn't the tapestry the symbol of Martin the Warrior? Oh, the symbol, the sword, the shield, all of the icons of their warrior saint, I guess. This is correct. So that's the synopsis done. Laurie, why don't you tell us why you chose this book? Well, I wanted you to read it. I wanted to read it again. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted listeners with kids or a penchant for this sort of thing to, to read it because I so dearly love the characters and the setting. Everything from the epic clashes of good and evil throughout the series to the endearing, comical and sometimes very distinctive characters um, that spring up with each new book. They all held a very special place in my childhood. And still, looking up at my bookshelf, hold a significant slab of my bookshelf. <laughs> Keith, it sounds like you're uh, chomping at the bit to tell us how long you thought this children's book was. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, like, that's the. <laughs> I asked for salient plot points and you bring up it's long. <laughs> so go on. Well, you just, made the, your you just made the pursuit of the sword sound so straightforward that I had to comment. <laughs> well. Look, I like tales of swords of power as much as the next guy. Probably oh, probably even more so than the next guy. <laughs> Unless maybe that next guy is Conan. You're a big fan of the Shannara series, eh? <laughs> or dare I say it, He-Man. Oh, oh, you didn't get that from the moment he uttered it? Oh. I, I, I did get it and I tried, I tried to derail it, but he just went explicit. <laughs> just turned around and dumped it on me. So, yeah, the writing in this book was good. Brian Jakes clearly has a passion for the word, the world that he's created, and it dripped from every page. And I can really see why this would be so appealing to so many children. I, I really honestly can. Before I go on, I will say this, and I've said this before, and I'm quoting a character who I enjoyed immensely. It's been my experience that you can nearly always enjoy things if you make up your mind firmly that you will. Of course, you must make it up firmly. And that's from Anne Shirley. Oh, and can we stop talking about <laughs> Anne Shirley? <laughs> but but that's, that's the approach I took with this. And as I mentioned already, I was really had no interest in the characters from the introduction. And that was my mantra to get me through the opening to a point where I, I sort of took some interest. And, and that really came, as Laurie's pointed out and Pat mentioned as well, it came with the introduction of Clooney the Scourge. From the opening, he basically sacrificed someone from his own army and he was the first character of interest there. He fit the evil character archetype and the, even his title, it was a fitting title, a scourge being not only someone who's a tormentor but also another name for a whip. So I, I like that and that was kind of the first time I, I took notice and said, okay, maybe I will get something from this book. I think Bree actually said that he was the most evil character she had ever encountered, which... <laughs> she did! I think it, it speaks to the evil of Clooney the Scourge and also the shelteredness of Bray's life heretofore. Uh, take from that what you yeah, will. Yeah, he was pretty evil. Maybe not as evil as Bray thinks, but he was very evil, um, particularly in the world that we'd been introduced to, which seemed to be all sunshine and lollipops. It was a bit samey, and I, don't, I haven't read a great deal of fantasy, but setting aside the animal fact, it was a bit predictable or very predictable. But that's not necessarily a criticism that can be levied fairly against books for children. So I won't pay too much heed to that. There were some really enjoyable moments in there. I really liked Constance, the character, and... She was a badger. She was a badger. And the moment where she lifted the table, threatening to 
crush Clooney and his captain was a really enjoyable one. As I'm going through, that that just happens and I'm really starting to build a bit of pace with my enjoyment of the book. And then along comes the moles with their ridiculous accents to burst that enjoyment. <laughs> what? I love the moles uh, accent most of all. Uh, <laughs> for the sake of people listening, the, the moles, everything they said was written phonetically and as near as I can tell, it's in some... Uh, really intense English dialect that's basically oh there we go to dig the hole for you everywhere something along those lines and you have to do your best to try and understand what oh, they're saying God. by by reading it I, for me I had to read everything they said about six times and kind of sounded out in my head before it made any modicum of sense and even then uh, it was strung together very <laughs> loosely yeah I agree with that it was at times almost Jar Jar Binks horrible Oh, no Oh, way. no, that's not true. That's not true. But the sparrows, yeah. who also had their own dialect, were getting into Jar Jar Binks yep, territory. Yeah, that's definitely where I was aiming that one at. The sparrows, or the sparrows, they were atrocious, horribly, horribly. Wow. They were more along the lines of, oh, Matthias, some mouse worm, um... Bring um, sword, and I'm I'm not umming. This is this is what they say. They say uh, every every freaking second word they say is um, and it's meant to be some kind of I don't know substitute for the or a or or, or both or God knows what. So it was challenging at times. Those dialects. Yep. Oh, Definitely. I found those. I found those dialects to be utterly adorable. Not just you know these birds and. Uh, moles, but even the the hairs have this very sort of stiff upper lip kind of British accent, and I just loved it. I loved that each species had their own special little dialect. I thought it really added to the colour of the characters. They're all English or British accents, so I don't know which the sparrows were supposed to be, and I don't care to find out, to be honest, but that's what they actually were <laughs> from Brian Jake's mouth. As I've mentioned, the hunt for Martin's sword was tedious and drawn out. There was never any doubt as to whether it would be found, but for it to come after 86% of the book was just a bit much. Well, uh, let's, let's not spoil it like too thoroughly with your page references <laughs> Sorry, at all. Sorry, but uh, I had to mention that. Yeah, this sort of mass level of anthropomorphism doesn't really appeal to me in the slightest. In The Lion King, if I'm to relate it to something that I enjoyed, <laughs> it feels like they stay largely true to their animal instincts. And I say feels like because I know it's obviously not true in relation to their animal instincts, but they do a good job of it. In Redwall, it seems like the different species were cast into their roles and they had to satisfy that. There was no animal-by-animal animal characterization. It was based on the species. I didn't feel any tension through the book, pretty much, despite there being several moments designed to do just that. It comes back to really having not much of an attachment to the characters because, like I said, the writing itself was good, apart from the fact that there was too much of it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Not to make too fine a point of it. Oh, wow. Yeah, the second attack by Clooney on Redwall was just like the first. Uh, it was kind of like Star Wars and the Death Stars in that respect. Uh, you know, right down to another rat wearing Clooney's armor, causing confusion for the creatures of Redwall. Having said all that, I did really enjoy the ending. I think the ending's really good. Which part of the ending? The way that they're battling, that Clooney got in and then Matthias t- turned up. Matthias turned up and had his perfectly planned out catchphrase to utter when asked by Clooney as to who he was, given that Clooney had been hallucinating in dreams the entire time of this creature that was coming for him. And that line is one of the puzzles that they solved in the pursuit of the sword. I am that is, which spells out Matthias. So that was his answer to Clooney. So I like the way that Clooney and his horde had entered the abbey, had effectively felt that they had won the war and were about to take their revenge on those who failed to surrender to them earlier and in bursts Matthias. And from there, I think we can see what's happening or what's going to happen. Hmm. So yeah, it was a good ending, but I just felt there was too much between the beginning and the ending. The one part, and this is a very minor quibble, but... The sword being called Rat Death. It was a shit name. Oh, it's a hopeless name. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that too. Like Rat Slayer, Rat Bane, 
Like, come on, there are all the fantasy tropes, all the, the well-worn fantasy names are so much better yeah, than Black it was Death. horrible. And I think the names throughout <laughs> the book kind of were similar. They were really either really good or really horrible. There was no in-between and it was just extreme to one side or the other. Yeah, and surely that sword already had a name. It's the sword that the Abbey was built upon, so... Surely it already has a name, but anyway, minor quibble. I will say that you would honestly have to pay me quite a reasonable amount of money to have me read any more in this series. I'm sorry to say that, Laurie, but it's true. Wow. <sighs> Disappointing. <laughs> I do have some questions for you, though, and we've touched on one of them already when, when Pat asked about the scale of it because that was something that I didn't get at all also. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, we've sort of covered that off a little bit. One question I had is why does Redwall have or is it perceived to have treasure? Do you know the history of the Abbey? I think Clooney, as you call him, just assumed that it was filled with treasure because it's a massive building and it's inhabited by lots of folk. So if you're a vermin warlord, you would assume that any castle-looking structure might be filled with treasure. Especially religious buildings too. I mean, if it is loosely based on English history... Or it's kind of set in what is a parallel feudal English setting, albeit with mice instead of people, then religious structures like that, abbeys, churches, whatnot, would be pretty fertile ground for looting and pillaging, I think, in terms of relics and whatnot. Golden goblets and chalices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. all all that sort of thing. Yeah, I guess, yeah, that was maybe the parallel I was trying to draw there between perhaps Redwall Abbey and maybe the Catholic Church or something like that. But So, and I have one other question, and this only really came up when I looked into, you know, how many of these books there were and that sort of thing. The chronology of the series, it's more confusing than Batman, Night of the Owls, New 52 reading order. Do you have any thoughts on that or <laughs> well there, there, there are two reading orders there's the release order the release order being red wall was released first so you read it first and then i think moss flower was written next so you read it next but which throws back to martin the warrior doesn't it if the synopsis i read at the back of the book is anything to go by yeah that sounds right and i think six books in martin the warrior is released um, and that obviously tells the story of Martin the Warrior rising from slavery and becoming the great warrior that leads a bunch of folk to freedom and founds the Abbey. I'm Spartacus. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the most popular books in this series as well, I think, if I'm correct. It was excellent. I really remember that being probably one of the best. So, yeah, the two orders. You can either read it in release order, which I recommend, or you can read it in chronological order, and there's lists available for both. So it does flick about. You sort of have these generational gaps, and sometimes you have hints like a very young badger babe might become an orphan and arrive on the steps of Redwall Abbey, and then several books later you'll hear about the very old badger that has been protecting the abbey for decades or something like that so you do sort of have hints of the relationship between the books but it's definitely not sequential so yeah cool that's um yeah i thought that might be more for people who took an interest in it because like i said i won't be reading anymore but (laughs) (laughs) I, i don't really mean that in any sort of way as a criticism of your enjoyment of this book because like i said i can see many many reasons why this would be endearing to children reading it and once you have an attachment to something like this it's it's a lifelong attachment so i don't have any problems with your love of this book at all <laughs> oh, gee, could could you pussyfoot around this anymore <laughs> that's truly what i feel i want to hear now laurie what you thought of your reread of it yeah right well the things that i loved about the red wall series begin here and i think are actually improved upon in the series as jake's found his stride the things that I loved are the, the accents, which is why I was a bit surprised that you didn't like it, or the accents specifically. Um, the humour of their different natures for the different species, I really, really found that very endearing and very humorous. The dreadful, callous evil of Gloomy and the inevitable triumph of the unlikely hero in surprisingly brutal battles is one of the biggest selling points for me. There's probably a touch more rough play here than some parents might find suitable, but I, I guess being a little bit immune to such things, think it builds suitable tension that's needed for satisfying victory. He's a sociopath. (laughs) Don't listen to him. (laughs) Creatures die valiantly in battle and others are unfairly robbed of life and we feel their loss as an unfair and wicked thing. 
but we're not wrapped up in cotton wool and shielded from these things. And I don't feel that Jake's was overly protective of young minds in that regard. And I think that made for better books. Mm, do you think, just sort of this now, but do you think maybe that's part of his reason for using animals as the characters, that it's a lesser toll? Well, depends who you speak to. For me, it makes no difference. For Brie, having heard some of her thoughts on the book, that makes it even worse. Even though they've been anthropomorphised, the fact that they were, at least in part, animals made any violence against them unbearable. But by other animals. It's animal-on-animal violence. Yeah. Mm, I guess so. But either way, Brie found animal violence to be utterly disturbing, whereas for me, it was just like humans battling each other it didn't really make that much difference the anthropomorphism was extreme it was like they lost a lot of their animal characteristics they were effectively very human apart from their physical capabilities you know birds that can fly animals that can climb and that sort of thing a lot of the other characteristics seem to have been thrown out the window Right, yeah. There are hints of things like that, though. Like the, I think otters and squirrels are a bit more, a bit more sort of flighty and a bit more energetic. And the badgers, you got a bit of a hint of this from Constance. Badgers are prone to blood wrath, so they're quite steadfast and not slow, but I don't know, just steady kind of creatures until their blood rises, you know, in the heat of battle, and they have this red mist go over their eyes, and they become frenzied berserker warriors. My love for you is like a truck. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> no, never mind. Is that a song called Berserker? Berserker. Right. So there are hints, characteristics of the creatures. Because I'm sure badgers can be quite fearsome little beasts. But yeah, you're right. They did sort of be very humanised. It reminds me of uh, Badger from Wind in the Willows quite a bit, who carried around a cudgel, I believe. And... <laughs> he used it to break the arms of weasels. He <laughs> <laughs> was a bit of a hard-ass. Right. I was thinking about that. I wondered whether the Wind in the Willows was a bit tamer but then yeah i remembered badger getting around with his cudgel whipping and smashing and breaking bones and clobbering heads of weasels until they either all died or ran off so i think it may have been a bit more 70s batman like pow wham (laughs) smack kind of stuff whereas this was uh driving a sword into someone's belly and twisting it till they fall into quarters kind of thing right which didn't really happen but that's close enough yeah it was i think they fell into halves Right. It was fairly intense in its as intense as you would expect a children's book to be in its depictions of mice on rat violence. Yeah, right. There is another series that has mice versus rats that I read. It's called just looking at my bookshelf. Uh, just for anyone who's a, a, a fan of mice on rats. <laughs> oh no! But what I was, what I was if this is your thing, popular genre, it's another series for you. It's set under the streets of maybe eighteen hundreds London, I think, somewhere around that time, and they have rats that actually skin and eat mice like it's really gruesome so so not only is it is it rat on mice it's ultra violence rat on mice yeah like really cruel sort of eating of other creatures anyway look what i want to know is if it's going to live up to red wall do they speak in ridiculous (laughs) accents no they. oh blimey governor (laughs) i don't know maybe they do it's been a while can't recall anyway i'm gonna go on if you don't mind please do by all means. I'm not sure it's deliberate. Actually, it probably is. But often Jake's introduces characters that at first are reviled or are treated poorly or are even feared. But for children, at least probably, subtle ways the protagonists learn to empathise with beings that are different to them and form what might at first seem to be very unlikely friendships or alliances. In this book, it occurs with the sparrows and also a cat they meet. If you're going to have morals in a children's book, then particularly for this age group, I found the idea of acceptance of difference and failings of prejudgment to be fairly smooth and inoffensive. What did you think? Yeah, no, I agree. And that's ultimately how they defeated Clooney, uh, basically the animals banding together uh, with these creatures. And it was the goodwill of the mice of Redwall that they'd built up previous that also assisted. But basically that was the difference. Clooney's army was 
for itself and the creatures of Red Wall were very giving and... For the greater good. That's right. So everyone could see that, all the other animals could see that and that's why they were so willing to put their own lives on the line to assist. Right. As a related aside to that, I thought the character of the cat, I can't remember his name right now, but... Jay uh, something. something. Uh, He was a a vegetarian cat and he was absolutely delightful. I think he may have been my favourite character in the book, but there was just some sort of charm about this cat that uh, I really, really, really liked. Yes! One of the characters broke through. (laughs) (laughs) One of the good ones. Did you like him, Laurie? Did you have similar kind of sentiment towards him? I really did, but there's a few characters later on in the series that I love even more. At one stage, there's this giant, really rough bird that can almost not understand what he's saying because he's got this... Oh, it's one for Keith. <laughs> super, super thick Scottish accent. Probably he's a meat eater, but meets a cute little mouse with a speech impediment or something like that, and they get along as friends later on. And that's probably one of my favourite characters. So yes, I loved him, the cat character, but yeah, not my favourite. Yeah, that's one thing, back to the chronology, they move about in time quite extremely, so not a lot of the characters recur in many of the books. No, that's right. Yeah. I, I, I can't really think of any, apart from the ones that sort of are, are babes in one book and then are old in later books. So Matthias isn't necessarily going to come back for round two? I think his offspring. Maybe, yeah. Matamio might be his offspring. Hmm. Okay, it's very reminiscent of... Magician. Raymond E. Feist, yeah, that, his universe with, yeah, starting with Magician and the Rift War saga and all those other things, which basically, you know, the children and the children's children's children of the original characters who progress through the series. Right. Except for Pug, obviously, who's an immortal magician and lasts for hundreds of years and probably also sells lots of books. And so you can't... <laughs> well, it's bleeding written on the cover of the first book, isn't it? <laughs> I wonder what Pug is going to be by the end of this story. <laughs> All right, talking more broadly of the series, there's a lot of plot parallels throughout the books. A quest to find something urgently needed or a big, bad, nasty warlord that wants to take life or liberty the rise of a hero that must face setbacks, a message, a riddle from the past or a spectral being, and the help of an unlikely friend. are all. These are all tropes that I recall getting trotted out quite often. However, the thing about the series that really sold it, again, for me, were the characters. Matthias is probably not even in the top ten characters that float around in my mind from the vague recollection from years ago. I, I recall... This troublesome toddler that I mentioned before with speech impediments, a cantankerous badger that entered mighty blood wroths, and heroes of all shapes and species and genders that really stood out in their own special way. Did I like this book? I really did. It very heartily draws from the concepts of Wind in the Willows and expands into a, I think, unique, sometimes bloody, but more often funny world of beasts and adventures. It's a cast of dozens, whereas Wind in the Willows, I think, was sort of fairly limited in scope. You had Ratty, Molly, Badger, Toad, and then a whole bunch of weasels, whereas this is... (laughs) It's it's stoats. Is it? (laughs) Well, no, the weasels and stoats were interchangeable, essentially. Ah, okay, all right. Whereas this is a cast of dozens, and that expands throughout the books. Is it the best of the series? Nope. Nope, but it's definitely worth a shot. And if it tickles the fancy of a young girl or boy, then there's, you know, over 20, as you mentioned, more adventures for them to chew through. And even if Matthias didn't strike a chord with you, then perhaps Mariel of Redwall or Madameo or Lord Brocktree or Triss the Squirrel Maid will. Fantasy, I guess, guys, is not for everyone. <laughs> Talking woodland creatures, clearly not for Keith. <laughs> but... I think if you're willing to give it a chance, if you're a kid, then I like to think that the characters will win you over. Patrick, merry adventure or painful slog? I have varying opinions. There were definitely things that were done well, and I may start with something that we haven't really covered yet and pose the question to you guys, and that is, was it just me or was this really long? I think it could have been edited down, yes. Yeah, it wasn't just you. And Bree, who unfortunately couldn't be here, did say that if she was to say one thing, it was that this has been a really long few weeks of reading. (laughs) I have read sort of either side of reading Red Wall. I have read a Stephen 
King Tome, which was not brief, uh, which I read in uh, two or three days. Uh, and I've read John Connolly's newest book in two or three days, having finished Redwall. And Redwall took me like th- three weeks. It was just... Oh, I, I, it didn't even appear that long on my Kindle. I don't know whether the the font was small or whether I was just grinding my way through it because it was a difficult read with some of the accents and things that were spelt phonetically, but there wasn't that much of it. it. It just defies all logic to me. It's like betwixt the covers of this book was a portal in time and space. <laughs> and I just sort of hung suspended in that space for hours of the real world's time and made no real inroads into the the pages it just seemed to go on and on and on and on we've been talking about that song all day <laughs> so it has a bit more comedy value than <laughs> Anyway, it was three hundred page, just over three hundred pages, three hundred and thirty. But the font is a tad smaller than the average book, I think. And the other books that I've read lately must have been at least three hundred pages as well, and they didn't seem to take half as long to read as this book. And I feel like my disposition towards it would have been significantly more positive if it had just not overstayed its welcome to the extent that it did. I thought overall the characters were pretty good. I enjoyed, as I said, the cat. Who shall remain <laughs> nameless because I can't remember his name was Gingerbeard. Gingerbeard. I thought he was an excellent character. I thought Matthias was okay, but it definitely fell into that hero's journey kind of mold far too squarely to be particularly exciting. He was the fantasy character that we all know and may have loved once, but have probably grown to resent by <laughs> the virtue of repetition. Yeah. But kids will be reading. Could potentially be reading that trope for the first time in this book yeah look if this is the first time that you've heard about some young farm boy going on a quest to fetch a magical sword then more power to you it's a great damn story the first time but unfortunately for i suppose adult patrick laurie maybe maybe the listeners at large who have to hear this spiel is that I have read that story so many damn times yeah, and enough. all through my childhood and granted it's one that I have loved but it's not one that I feel the need to keep revisiting now I've I've drunk deep from the well of that standard fantasy plotline and I'm completely sated uh, I, I've had enough of it uh, the characters otherwise were, I thought, a little bit inconsistent. It struck me that you say that Brie really struggled with some of the violence. You were unmoved, really. But I found that I just... I couldn't care less. They, they were they were basically recyclable, especially Clooney's revolving door of lieutenants oh. who, uh, I mean, you know, one dies, another three take his place. Those three are all murderized in various ways and another three pop up and I felt like I was just watching the same cycle repeat over and over and over again. I thought that was meant to be a comedic element actually that it may have been comedic for a little while but the the book had started to grate on me by a certain <laughs> point I think and it it didn't retain much comedy value. Even some of the major mice characters who were lost along the way, who I I suppose I won't name them just for the sake of maintaining some mystery for anyone who might want to pick it up, but I didn't really care that much when they met their untimely end. And then there was one character at the end who one thought was murdered, and I was reasonably happy with that. I thought, you yeah, know, that's like I'm, I'm the... Uh, the, the field mouse character and then it turned out that he was actually okay he'd just taken a blow to the head and i was actually a little bit let down yeah maybe i shouldn't have been pointing the finger earlier on for the the sociopath amongst us yeah i thought he was done for as well and i didn't see the need to have him to revive no. him he didn't need that that brief mouth-to-mouth session and uh, untimely revival Anyway, it, it was all okay. I liked 
parts, other parts grated on me a little bit. I thought the accents were okay at times. I thought they added a bit of flavour to the characters, but it wasn't necessarily a flavour that I relished as much as Laurie did. It was a, a curry that I have not been used to and maybe need some time to adjust to a little bit before it's redolent aromas ring pleasant to me. Um, uh, overall, it was it was okay. It, I, I probably won't be reading on either, but I don't necessarily regret having dipped my toe. Before we move on then, Patrick, did you have any feelings about the, the levels of violence? Because most of it I thought was fairly acceptable. There was one particular scene that I found a little bit disturbing, and when I detail it for the listeners, they'll wonder why I found it only a little bit disturbing. Can you guess which part? Look... My heart is cold and unmoving. I really can't guess what part you're talking about because none of it really fazed me. I thought it was all pretty mild. But having said that, I, I've, I've told you I've bookended my reading of this with a, a Stephen King on one end and John Connolly on the other. So. <laughs> right. Yeah, like Patrick, and maybe it was the attachment to the characters as well, or the lack of that attachment. None of them really stood out to me. There was a little bit more violence perhaps than you would expect from the opening, but I can't think of one instance that stood out to me. All right, I'll briefly describe it. Clooney had tasked the weasels to dig a tunnel underneath the wall while the Red Wallers were being distracted on another portion of the defensive wall. And the moles had detected this tunneling. So they all get set up with a giant pot of boiling water. So as soon as... Two giant pots. Two giant pots, that's right, of boiling water. So as soon as the weasels and rats pop their heads out of this tunnel... Keith? They tip the boiling water over them and instantly kill them. That's right. They boil them to death. Like there's this descriptive scene of all of these uh, rats and weasels being washed away in a muddy, boiling mess and they sort of pop out the other end as pink and boiled alive. (laughs) Yeah, pretty unpleasant. And then they collapse the tunnel on top of them and I think he even says something like it's a a fitting mass grave for the enemy or something like that. It is a very bloodthirsty (laughs) scene. I will will give you that. He was pulling no punches there, that's for sure. No, definitely. I think maybe maybe even Brian Jakes had grown to hate (laughs) characters of his (laughs) novel by the stage. How do I get rid of 500 rats? Here we go. (laughs) Yeah, he dispatched them in a most, most vicious manner. Yeah, right. I'm sure Brie would have brought that part up had she been Yeah, she would have. I think that's probably about all I had to say about it. Probably I'm looking at it again through the eyes of someone who is not in that red wall stage of life anymore. And if I throw back to myself back in the day, back when I was the age when you first read them, right? I probably would have loved this. I think it would have been right up my alley. And so for kids in that younger age bracket, I think it's definitely something that they should check out. Right. And I guess from my perspective, something that Keith can appreciate, I'm sure, that the nostalgia is very strong in this one, especially given that I know that the subsequent books in the series were... The high point, the high watermark. Yeah, like the high boiling watermark. They improved with time. There was no doubt that they they definitely got better writing. The characters became more interesting, and this book is very very much set in Redwall Abbey with a very slight jaunt away in the quest for the sword. But a lot of the other books were point A to point B and maybe back to point A again. So they'd go off adventuring and meet all these new characters and either be chasing someone or being chased by something or seeking some treasure or relic in distant lands. So it's not quite as contained within the Abbey, which having read those other ones, I found to be a little bit less exciting. Yeah, the Abbey was pretty dull. The only times it wasn't was when it was under attack. I'm coming at it from the perspective of knowing that there's so much more to come, but still enjoying it quite a bit. But anyway. Can I just mention really quickly as well, on the topic of characterization, you read the first page there and it portrays Matthias as the young novice tripping over his robe with his overlarge shoes and whatnot. Did, did you guys find that that was basically the only page where they introduced Matthias really as that young bumbling novice. It seems like three pages later he decides he's going to be the most 
glorious warrior the land has ever seen yep. and achieves that instantaneously and successfully. Yep. <laughs> well, the abbot says that it's, well, makes out that it's his own fault that he stumbled anyway because they'd given him oversized clothes and shoes. Like, he was just wearing what the abbey had given him and the abbot's like, oh, well, actually, that's my fault because we gave him stuff that's way too big. So I don't think he was necessarily as clumsy as you think he is. In it. He was already the glorious warrior, just in disguise. But yeah, there was very little attention given to the transformation. It was it went from that one scene to him speaking up in front of the entire Abbey with leadership skills that betrayed his experience. Mm. I think sometimes the books have the notion of having warrior blood, like that some people are born to, I don't know, defend the Abbey or... And it just manifests with that sort of speed and decisiveness. If he had found the sword earlier, I could have bought the transition. It would have been almost Prince Adam into He-Man. Oh, jeez. Oh, get now. Get it. Um, I have exciting news for uh, the listeners also, by the way. We'll be auditioning for a new fourth member. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks for your thoughts, Pat, if that's it. That is it. Thank you. I do want to actually add something from the Q&A. If it's about the length. No, it's certainly not. <laughs> it's, a, it's from the Brian Jakes Q&A that I read, which was quite informing, actually. You might not like this, but someone asks, have you ever thought of using mythological creatures in your stories? Not that I don't adore them the way they are, but I'd like to see the Red Wallers react or see how the Red Wallers would react if a dragon swooped in or a goblin began haunting the gatehouse. And his response, no, I've used creatures that I know mostly and tried to imbibe mystery here and there into some creatures whose species is not specified, but I am not a fan of sword and sorcery, so that I will never have goblins or dragons or any purely mythical creatures in my world of Red Wall. Well, he certainly has a lot of sword for someone who's not a fan of yeah. sword and sorcery. Yeah, I think he tends towards the pure medieval, but I think in some of the later books there is a bit of magic involved, magic relics or something. Well, there is some sort of implied powers of the sword and the tapestry well yeah certainly martin there's an aura of mysticism that surrounds the the warrior priest Mm. martin yeah he can enter the dreams of Clooney and those of matthias as well all right well thanks for your thoughts boys now it's that time when no one is snoring because keith rowe is scoring the scoring scale for this one i'll keep it simple and tied into the characters so was it one Clooney the scourge continually forcing suffering upon any that encounter it was it two cheese thief burdened with a silly name eager to prove itself <laughs> but in the end undone by its own ambition Ooh, clever. was it three warbeak mostly good but a little misguided at times was it four constance Brave, powerful, and reliably good. Didn't even need to badger you into liking it. Mm. (laughs) Or was it five? I am, that is, Matthias. Only the pen is mightier than his sword. All right. Patrick, why don't you go first? Oh, the burden of responsibility here. I feel like this could be a, a rift between us forevermore. I didn't hate it and I did not love it therefore the number shall be 3.5 well listeners I hope you've enjoyed Seeking Thomas we've certainly had fun you worried about 3.5 geez I'm, uh... it's time for a new chapter in our lives good news we'll be auditioning for two new members no, I think that's reasonable Hmm. Keith? Do I want to score this honestly? Yes, I do. I'm giving it <laughs> I'm giving it a two. It was too long. There was good parts in there, but for me, as a first time reader, it was not enjoyable. Yep. Too long. How how would you rate it just out of interest, Keith? How would you rate it for a nine-year-old oh look like i said earlier i think i can see the elements that would really appeal to them and it's something that you can read in chunks so if like pat mentioned they hadn't been versed in this this tropes of fantasy yeah that's right in the tropes of fantasy this would be fantastic and really yeah i could recommend it for children but certainly not it wasn't for me 
I would bump mine probably up to a 4 or a 4.5 for someone in that younger demographic. Might not get to a 4.5, but maybe a 3.5 for that for me. And Laurie, how do you score it? Yeah, a 4 for me. I liked it, I enjoyed it, but I know it's not the best in the series. And I guess that's a, a real problem for the series. Well, I don't expect too many adults will be picking up this first book. You think Redmall might be an unnecessarily high barrier <laughs> to entry for some of those... That wasn't a joke <laughs> for some of those later books. I agree. I think, you know, if, if let's say three adults sort of assuming Brie was going to vote along the same lines based on her comments prior to recording. She did say it started out as a one. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, she yeah. did say that, didn't she? It started off as a one, but it started getting better for her as she read. But even so, I'm sure she's not going to be rating it. A, she wouldn't have rated a four or five at a guess. No, I think it was a, I think it was probably still a one for Brie because she did find some elements that redeemed it a little, but she did say to me, after reading a little more, I still hate it. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a pity that she wasn't here to spew some of that vitriol about she it. She does do that well. Although I think we we did we did canvas its flaws fairly comprehensively, and none of its sins are egregious either. In my view, it perhaps was the house guest that doesn't quite get the hint when it's time to just. Oh, oh, I'm tired. I'm ready to go to bed. You want to like maybe. Go home. Chapter three. (laughs) 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 All right. But from the perspective of a nine or a 10 year old, or for that intended audience, I can't think, you know, apart from those favorites that we won't mention, um, I can't think of a series for kids that might like fantasy that I would recommend further for that age group, more than this series. Could you? Could either of you boys think of a series for that age group for fantasy that would be better? Not that you've oh, read the series. Rangers Apprentice. Oh, Rangers Apprentice was some good stuff. It was, but it's not 10-year-old. I really liked um, the David Eddings series, the Belgaria. Come on, was... Patrick. That's for like 40-year-olds. <laughs> no, man, I've, I've gone back to it as, a, as an adult and tried reading it again, and it's some pretty... It's fairly low level. Oh, is it? Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. I mean... I think it's it's aimed at being for an adult audience, but I think again it doesn't. It, it's so mired in those really well worn fantasy tropes that it's far better consumed at a younger age. Mm. Gosh, I, yeah, I think really for a young age it fits the bill. It does. You're right on that account. Was was Wizard of Earthsea? Was that a series or was it just the one book? I read that book, but. It was a, a couple of books, a couple of short books. Quartet. I, I read that in year four, year five as well, and it was also good for, for that kind of age. But I think it also raised some sort of heavier-ish issues that are well-suited to an older audience as well. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, yes, you could read it young, but it's probably... Some of it's lost. Some of the themes you might appreciate more as an adult. I think, yeah, it was a quartet, Pat, by the way. Oh, the SC Quartet, of course. Mm. Uh, that was one that my school librarian read to us in the afternoons really yeah, at it, what age trying to, i think we may have been year five maybe year six that's a fantastic librarian oh she was wonderful shout out to <laughs> shout out to uh, mrs hannaford back in loriton she named her daughter after one of the lord of the rings characters too which i think is pretty kick-ass really she had a passion for fantasy and it wasn't necessarily one that i recognized until I was a little bit older and didn't realise what a kick-ass librarian she was. Right. I think the summary there was probably not great unless you're a sentimental adult that's read it before, but if you're a 9 or a 10-year-old, then there's great potential. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm on board with that. All right, let's wrap up then. With some of us glowing warmly in nostalgia, that's me, and others calling pest services, that's everybody else, (laughs) (laughs) We'll set off from Redwall And next episode We'll find ourselves at the beginning Of a mysterious labyrinth Not the kind with a bog of eternal stench A Terry Jones script And a singularly unique soundtrack But instead An absolute titan of contemporary Young adult fiction A post-apocalyptic dystopian book That sighed a major motion picture And two sequels The Hunger Games (laughs) Or is that three sequels? (laughs) It is, of course, The Maze Runner by James Dashner. Grab it any way you can and meet us here in two weeks and we'll wander through its passages together.
Until then, if you've got a girlfriend who's a real mole, or one, <laughs> or one that badgers you all the time, or a cute friend with mousy locks, or even one that's a bit of a fox, or utterly gorgeous, and it's all very distracting, squirrel yourself away and keep reading. I'm still seeking Let this be a warning to you about the lengths and depths and lengths that he will go to. It was quite a long book. Because like I said, the writing itself was good, apart from the fact that there was too much of it. This has been a really long few weeks of reading. Surely it's too long and drawn out to be an effective manifesto. I'm sure it's got plenty of recipes in it if the length of this one's anything to go by. Too long. I just thought there was too much between the beginning and the ending.